O great God and Father, these these words uh, challenge us and confront us tonight. And we ask, Father, that in that, that confrontation with Your Holy Word, that we will be submissive and humble before it, Father, and accept it as, as Your voice to us, instructing our minds and hearts as to how to live and how to be pleasing in Your sight. So we ask You, Father, to give us eyes that see and ears that hear. And we ask You, Father, to bless this period of time as we, we, we listen and study and think about what it means to be a disciple. And we ask You, Father, to, to bless our church with maturity and with the strength of character and with insight and perspective. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. First uh, John chapter two verses fifteen through seventeen is a very important passage. It's also, I, I think, a very rich passage. But I want to begin tonight with addressing some of the confusion that is found in both the Christian and the non-Christian world when it comes to this passage. And the the confusion is this: What is the Christian's relationship to the world? What is the Christian's relationship to the world? Here in 1 John, John writes that Christians are not to love the world or anything that is in the world. And yet, you and I both know from memory some of the first verses that we ever memorized out of the Bible. This same John, in his Gospel, chapter 3, verse 16, says that God so loved the what? The world. That He gave His one and only Son. That whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is confusing to many. And God, we are told in the third chapter of John's Gospel, loves the world so much that He empties heaven of His treasure, His Son, in order that that world might be saved. Now, this makes it sound like a good thing to love the world, and yet this same author says in 1 John chapter 2 that we are not to love the world. We're not to love the world. So what in the world is going on? Well, the answer is that the word world can, can be used in two different senses. In one of those senses, we are to love the world, but in the second sense, we are to hate the world. And getting that distinction down is pretty important. In fact, it's critical. In, in the one sense, it means the physical universe. It means human beings. It means nature. It means the things that God created in Genesis 1 and 2. It's all the things that He has, he has created. But in another sense, the word world means a system of thinking that is counter to the will of God. Worldliness, according to the Bible, is a state of mind in which the physical world is all that there is. Worldliness is to act as if the material world is all that there is, that it's the whole show, to make something that is good an ultimate thing. So sometimes... The word world is used to mean the material universe and at other times it means a system of thinking that shuts out God and makes the material world the ultimate. And again, this is very critical. It's really critical in knowing what it means in order to live and to think as a disciple of Jesus. And in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, there are three things that we're going to look at tonight and kind of return to next week. 
And in this passage, we're going to find these three things. What worldliness is not, what worldliness is, and what worldliness results in. And here they are in that order. What worldliness is not. It is not hating the physical and material universe. Here's verse 15 again. John writes, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now to help us to understand how to not love the world, we have to understand what it means to love the world. The Bible teaches that the physical material universe and human beings are things that Christians are to love. God so loved the world that He gave His Son. And when God created the world, He made human beings in His own image. In fact, that, that word in the Septuagint is icon. We become God's icon. There is a sense in which we reflect, as human beings, we reflect God. And this God made nature, and He made trees, and He made mountains, and He made skies, and rivers, and trout. He made matter. And when you read the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, God is continually blessing what He creates. In other words, God is speaking a benediction, a, a blessing over the created world. The it is good, or it was good, is continually spoken. And then later, God entered creation by taking on a human body in the Incarnation. Now, just about every other religion gags on the idea of the material world being good, or anything material being good. The only thing that is good is the spirit world. Very Platonian. But this is one of the things that makes Christianity so unique. Christianity pays your physical body this tremendous compliment more than any other religion. It's because matter really matters. And when Christ died and rose again, He didn't get rid of the body and its phys physicality, did He? What does He ask of His disciples? Can you give me something to eat? Now listen, friends, there is no other religion in the world that pays the physical that kind of compliment. And the Bible teaches that God not only invented the matter, but He is going to redeem it. Now think about the implications of that. I think that there's at least four. Please write them down. Christians respect the rights and needs of other human beings. Why? Because we're made in the image of God. There is a truly amazing passage out of James chapter 3. Starting in verse 9, James says, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's what? Likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing my brothers this should not be. What? James is trying to remind people is that we're created in the image of God. We are creative. There's a creativity uh, uh, activity inside of us, and it's because God is also creative. And there's a rational side of us because God is also rational. And there is the ability for things to be personal and intimate because God is personal and intimate. And because God is moral, we too are moral. We have consciences. And James says, when you trample with your tongue, even lightly, even lightly, anyone that's made in the image of God, what well, he asks, do you know what you're doing? Think of it this way. Suppose, suppose your grandmother raised you from a pup and put you through college and helped you to get set up in life. And she was the one that nurtured you, the one that provided for you and fed you and loved you and cared for you. And before she died, she gives you a picture of herself that you highly treasure because every time you see it, you see all of the love 
that was invested in you, all of the sacrifice, the activity, all of the energy that was spent on your life. And you take this, this portrait of your grandmother, and to honor her, you hang it in this conspicuous spot in the house, and then one day you come home from work, and you see that one of the kids has taken a black crayon and blacked out one tooth, and then has, has drawn a wart on her cheek, and then drawn big, ugly glasses on her eyes. When you see that, what happens on the inside of you? The beast becomes to come out, right? Anger makes itself known because they've trampled on the likeness of someone who is near and dear to you. And this is what James says happens when you praise God out of one side of your mouth and then you curse men with the other who are made in God's image. And Christians know that humans are not just another kind of animal on the planet, that, that we're not just a higher, more highly evolved form of animal on the planet. We're made in the image of God. A second thing, Christians should be concerned about the stewardship of God's creation. Matter is good for all of the reasons that I've, I've mentioned previously. I won't spend much time on this. But then number three, Christians are to love people who are made in God's image. There's this place over in John chapter 12, verse 47, where Jesus is saying, listen, I didn't come into the world to judge the world, but to what? But to save it. In John chapter 3, verse 17, many of the scholars think that it's a Johannine reflection, that this is probably not, not uh, Jesus speaking, but John reflecting back on the meaning of John 3, 16. And he says, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. My friends, I really think that God's heart is broken when every time a human being is murdered or when a child is neglected or when someone loses a job or divorce takes place or when someone feels lonely. And I think that God hates it when people that are made in His image are made to be fearful and to live their, their life in trembling. And I really believe that one of the most poignant moments in each of our days should be the 6 p.m. news. When, when I watch the news, I'm reminded of this passage in Matthew 23 where Jesus is looking out over this, this grand, beautiful city, Jerusalem. And He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Jesus is not saying, oh my goodness, look at all these sinful people. He's wishing to gather them up because He knows what they're going through. He knows, he, he knows what's happening on the inside of them. And, and, and to say, oh my goodness, look at all these sinful people and want to be separate from it, that's just not the way that God operated in the world. In fact, one of the biggest criticisms that was leveled at Christ is, uh, why is he sitting with all of those sinners? Why is he eating with those tax collectors and those people that are known to be sinners? God loved the world. God loved the world even after it was fallen. The one of the amazing things is that John 3.16 comes after Genesis chapter 3. It was after the world was fallen. The world was broken. It was after our, 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 our nature became fallen and we, our proclivities are to sin from birth. It was after that that God sends His Son in love to redeem the world. Even after it was fallen and full of lost people, God loved it. And then the last one, 
because of, of the fact that, that we're, we're to love the world and, and, and to love people, because God loves people, Christians really understand who they work for, and that impacts the place where they work. It's, you know, I, I believe this with all of my heart. It's not more spiritual to work for the MacArthur Park Church of Christ than it is to work for Taco Cabana. I don't say that lightly. Because I want the things that I do and the things that the staff does and, and the shepherds and, and all of our deacons and our ministry leaders, uh, all, all of the, the, the support staff, the secretaries, I want everything that we do as a church family and, and as a, a part of the body of Christ to be spiritual and to have God stamped all over it. But what we do in terms of mission and what we do in terms of impact and influence on the city is not any different from the guy that works at, at, at the Valero Quick Stop or the Taco Cabana or, or any of the other restaurants or businesses in this place. Our work, any work that we do that is legitimate and lawful, any of the work that we do is to be done to God's glory. And, and what that means is that, is that when we go to work every day, the kinds of things that, that the staff and I are, are doing and the shepherds are doing in terms of reaching out to people and meeting people and talking with people, praying for people, and, 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 and the Word of God being made alive in all of our conversations are the exact same things that every person that does the secular work is doing as a mission for God. Whether it's, whether it's for or at the H-E-B. So worldliness is not hating the world. There is a, a sense in which there is a, a worldliness in which we are approaching the world and embracing the world and loving the world that God in, in the same way that God does. So this kind of worldliness that John is talking about in chapter 2, what is it? Well, again, we'll have to do kind of an overview and we'll return to it next week. But here's what worldliness is. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. Three things he says here. It's the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Now, as I've said earlier, what makes the world bad and something to be hated in 1 John is not that it's, it has a physicality to it, that it's material, but that it becomes the ultimate thing. I mean, that's really at the heart of idolatry. That's at the heart of sin. Augustine was one of the best at, at phrasing this. He says, you, you know what idolatry is? It's when you take something good and you make it an ultimate. That's what this kind of worldliness that John is talking about in 1 John chapter 2 is all about. It's, it's, it's acting as if there is nothing outside of our six senses. Or five senses. How many do we have? Six senses. We, well, my wife has a sixth sense. <laughs> uh, most men I know only have five. But <laughs> Think of it this way. Is there anything wrong with being a human? Absolutely not. But how about this? Is there anything wrong with being a humanist? That is where everything that is human is ultimate. Well, absolutely. Is there anything wrong with pleasure? I mean, is pleasure wrong? Speak to me. No. But is there anything wrong with hedonism that is making pleasure ultimate? Yes. 
And when you look at the world as if it's all that matters, all that is, then I'm telling you, church, we're in trouble. Now, the word that is used in, in this text in the original language, the first time it's used as craving, second time it's used as lust, is the word that, that actually means an over-desire, that you're over-desiring something that is good. Now, there's nothing wrong with food. We have to eat to live, right? In fact, God gave us food with all kinds of flavors and textures to enjoy. But to live for that? It's a problem. You know, one of the, the, the things that, that blew my mind the first time I heard it was that the very first sexual thought ever thought in the entire universe was thought by whom? God. Is there anything wrong with, with sex? No. God invented it within the confines of a, a covenant in marriage. But to live for sex is a problem. There's nothing wrong with money. Money can be used for all kinds of great things. In fact, you need money to be able to take care of your life. But to live for money is a problem. Now, what John is not saying, John, John is not saying don't love material, physical things. What he is saying is don't make them ultimate. Don't you dare live as if the material, as if the physical, as if the matter is the only thing that counts, the only thing that's important. I mean, Christians who view money and its use from just the world and just the economies of the world, that, that's being worldly. But a Christian who views his money and its use from a bigger world, a world that includes God, that is not worldly in the sense that John's using it in 1 John chapter 2. Think about it in the area of worry. What is one of the ways that the Bible references worry? I'll give you a hint. It's in, it's in one of the parables. In the old American standard version in the parable of the sower, Mark chapter 4, verse 18, And others are they that are sown among the thorns. These are they that have heard the word and the what? cares of the world. The cares of the world. If you're worried about what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink and what you're going to wear and where you're going to live, that's worldliness according to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And if you think that this world is all there is and it doesn't give you what you want, what you think you deserve, if you think that the world is it, the world is ultimate, that what we see is what we get and what you're able to get by your own hand, that's all there is to be achieved. If that's the way you think and you don't achieve it, you're not sad, are you? You're in despair. You're bitter and you're broken. A Christian always considers the physical world in light of the bigger world that puts God at the center. So love not that kind of world. And then the last thing, what worldliness results in, verse 17, the world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. The best argument against worldliness is that it falls. It falls. If you live to look good, it doesn't matter how many facelifts you have, it always eventually does what? Falls. And in verse 17, the world is passing away. Only the one who does the will of God lives forever. That means you live by a different standard. You live by the perspective of a bigger world. Not one in which everything physical is the ultimate. 
but a one that recognizes that the world is good because there is a great God, a great creator God, a shepherd God, a father God who has created it. And we respond to it the way that he does. Uh, how many of you here have read Jane Eyre, Charlotte Bronte? It's amazing. I don't see any guys raising, well, one or two guys. <laughs> hey, I want to, yeah. Oh, uh, how many of you guys have you seen the movie? <laughs> Fantastic book. All, every, I think everybody should read this book at some time in their life. There is a passage, you'll remember in the book, where Mr. Rochester wants to marry Jane, and he reveals that he is already married, and she's shocked. And the reason that you know he wants to marry Jane, even though he is still married, is because his wife is mad. She's been locked up in this attic for ten years. And he has kind of rationalized everything in his mind. He believes in his own mind that the marriage has been nullified because his wife is insane. And he has no qualms whatsoever marrying Jane, although it's illegal and it's an immoral marriage. And Jane, with every fiber, wants to do this. But she thinks. And she refuses. And there's this argument that ensues where Mr. Rochester asks, you know, who in the world is going to care for you? And, and, and think of this, Jane. Who would be injured if, you, if we go off and we marry each other? And she responds like this. She says, I care for myself. The more solitary, the more friendless, the more unsustained I am, the more I will respect myself. I will keep the law given by God, sanctioned by man. I will hold to the principles received by me when I was sane and not mad as I am now. She really wants to marry him. But, she says, laws and principles are not for the times when there is no temptation. They are for such moments as this when body and soul rise in mutiny against their rigor, stringent as they are, inviolate as they shall be. If at my individual convenience I might break them, what would be their worth? They have a worth. So I have always believed. And if I cannot believe it now, it is because I am quite insane, quite insane with my veins run, uh, running fire and my heart beating faster than I can count its throbs. Preconceived opinions, foregone determinations are all I have this hour to stand by. And there I plant my foot. And so she did. It's doing the will of God. What, that's what John is, is bringing home here. You think of Jesus in the garden. Think of Jesus in the garden sweating the drops of blood who is in anguish and in deep sorrow in his soul, soul because he knows what he's facing just hours, just hours down the road. And there are things in his heart that he does not want to transpire but must transpire because they are part of God's will. And so he says, not my will, but your will be done. And what Jesus does is plant his foot in the will of God. Not in the cravings of the eye or the lust of the flesh or the pride of life, but in doing the will of God. Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now. And one of the things that, that, uh, that we offer, that we invite you to do tonight, is if you've never made your life uh, uh, 
a, a strong relationship, a, a bond with God Himself through Christ. There's, there's, there's no better time than right now to do that. And the problem, the problem is, is that we, we have such a hard time in this culture, in this country, of thinking that, that we can't do it, that we can't achieve it. That even if we're religious, we still struggle with, 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 with part of what it means to be an American, and that is that independence and that self-determination and that, that pull yourself up by your bootstrap Puritan work ethic that's been drilled into all of us, that we, we don't ever get a free lunch, that we have to buy everything, that, and that we deserve nothing. And the bottom line is that we really don't deserve it. That's why it's a gift. It's not something that, that we gain by our own hand. God has done everything, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, has done everything in Christ who is our atoning sacrifice for sin. That means, that means that the only way to the Father is through the Son. And by faith in what He has accomplished, by faith in the life that He lived, by faith in what He achieved on the cross in paying our debt of sin, the debt that we owe, because we didn't live the life that we should have lived. And we don't die the debt that we deserve to die because He did it. And through faith, we access that. We confess Him to be Lord. We repent, that is, we make a decision to go in the direction of God with everything about us. We participate in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, all of that that He achieved on the cross. We participate in what He achieved through our baptism. The Spirit comes to live inside of us. Our sins are forgiven. We enter into fellowship with, 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 with other people that are like-minded and we are encouraging of one another, we're teaching of one another, we're modeling for one another, we're admonishing one another. We are, we are going hand-in-hand in, hand in fellowship as a body, as a church, as a family, as a beautiful bride of Christ. All of this imagery, we are going together towards the presence of God in, 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 in the world to come. And as we sing the song, some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front and if what I'm describing tonight makes sense to you, it makes sense because you try with all of your heart and with all of your strength and with all of your willpower not to do what's wrong, and you keep doing it. You may go a week, you may go, may not go seven days, you may not go seven minutes without doing something that you know is displeasing to God and thereby guilty before God's perfect holiness. If that makes sense to you, that the only way out is if from heaven there's a hand that comes down and grabs you and pulls you out of the abyss and gives you the new life, not a new leaf. It's not something that gets attached to you. You're a new creature. It's a new life with forgiveness and the Spirit and the fellowship and all of these things and eternity, eternity with God in a place where there's... there's there's no evil. There's no fear. There are no broken relationships. There's no despair. There's no despondency. There's no depression. There's, there, there's, there's no dark night of the soul. But there's gladness. There's no tears. There's happiness. There's, there's no cancer. There's no leukemia. There's, there's, there's no infections that take children's lives. There's only life eternal. And food. And 
friendship and banquets and, and God's presence. If that describes what you're looking for tonight, our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. Come down and talk to them. Come down and share your heart with them and let them know what it is that you desire tonight to have happen in your life for all of eternity. Let's stand and sing together. Jesus, let us come to you.